Hello, you're listening to Send in the Experts with Georgina Durrant. This podcast is all about teaching and supporting children and young people with special educational needs and disabilities, SEND. My name is Georgina Durrant. I'm the host of this podcast brought to you by Twinkle SEND. As a former teacher in Senko myself, I wanted to create a platform to share some of the amazing things that my guests are doing to support learners of SEND. So whether you're listening on your commute, tuning in whilst walking your dog or curled up on the sofa with a nice cup of coffee, thank you so much for joining us. In this episode, I am thrilled to be joined by Sarah Johnson. Sarah has worked in education for the last 20 years. As a qualified teacher, Sarah has enjoyed roles in mainstream schools, pupil referral units, alternative provision, and psychiatric inpatient services. Sarah is the author of the book, Behaving Together, A Teacher's Guide to Nurturing Behaviour. Sarah's most recent contribution to supporting schools are her books, All About SEMH, which are practical guides for primary and secondary school teachers to support children. And they're brilliant because I've read them. (laughs) Um, As a member for the Department of Education's Alternative Provision Stakeholder Group, she has supported development of policies such as the recent Send an AP Green Paper, as well as chairing a range of panels and events within the education sector. What? That's amazing what you've done, isn't it? I feel a bit intimidated. <laughs> Hello, welcome. When, thank you. When you started reading that, I thought, oh, you've done your homework. And sometimes I forget all the things that I've, I've done and I've kind of squished it in um, in a short amount of time. And one of the things that probably, if if your listeners have heard of me before, I go on and on about it. I've got three children under the age of two as well. I've actually got four children, but three of them are under two. Um, so my life has been chaotic, I think, to say the least, in the last two, three years. So it's really exciting as well, though, to be well enough to have conversations about the work that I'm doing, because I was so poorly, yeah. I could only do the work. I couldn't then talk about the work. No way. I was it was not a not a pretty sight oh no, that's brilliant so your background I've got a little bit of your background told there but there's quite a lot more I imagine can you tell us your your background and in particular why why you're so passionate about SEMH where, what led you towards this important role so in terms of my background um people often say oh I'm the first person in my family to go to university um, I'm the first person in my family to have finished school successfully oh wow um, I had um I love education actually I really engaged with it um, I had a very difficult childhood and actually education for me was very much about a safe place I had some amazing teachers in secondary school as well um that were really supportive um and sort of developed me I also had a really amazing friendship group as well um we celebrated um 30 years of knowing each other the other day um, from the secondary school it was lovely um and I want children to have those experiences of school, of meeting people that they'll be lifetime friends, of enjoying education, of understanding the world around them in better ways. And I know that for some people that's really difficult and um, and it's difficult for lots of different reasons, whether or not it's um, the system of school is very rigid and not really flexible, whether or not actually some children find that actually their particular neurodiversity makes it really challenging in that environment or they might have anxiety, depression, they might have a traumatic background, and therefore that school environment becomes really difficult. But also for other children, it's a safe place, just like it was a safe place for me. So I want to kind of, I want to give children the experience of education that I had, um, and it to be really kind of empowering for them. Um, and, you know, I was the first person in my family to finish school successfully, but then I went on to university, and then I went on to do a master's, um, but to reaffirm the fact that I've got three children under two, I was doing a PhD and that's a little bit on the wayside. You know, education for me is really important. It just helps give a lens to the to the world and gives you access to so many more resources, hopefully. So that's why I want to give to other children. That's wonderful. And so SEMH is quite a huge topic to cover in a podcast. It feels a little bit like when I did um, a podcast on speech, language and communication needs. And we realised when I was researching, it's such a broad area that you can't really cover all of it in there. So the plan for this podcast, so the listeners can understand, is we're going to do a bit of a general overview, go through a few strategies, but then focus particularly on anxiety um, and look at that. And I'm going to try and nudge the listeners to look at your books as well throughout because they are brilliant. If we first talk about terminology, because terminology is really important and it's changed a lot, what does SEMH stand for and what does it mean to you? What do you think? What's your definition of SEMH? 
So it stands for social, emotional, mental health needs. And it's the idea that it's a type of particular type of special educational needs where um, children have real difficulties in managing their emotions and behaviour. Um, so it's often spoke about that they might have um, inappropriate responses um, to communication, to the environment around them, to friendships and so on. I think that social, emotional, mental health is more complex than that in that we don't we don't exist in a vacuum as humans. Humans are incredibly complex. And I think when we're talking about social, emotional, mental health, it's such a diverse, broad term, a bit like speech, communication and language needs as well. And that actually the influence, for example, on speech and language needs um, will, will affect your behaviour. You know, if you're finding it difficult to understand or articulate your perspective, it is possible, likely even, that you might feel anxious you might feel worried you might feel um emotionally dysregulated because you feel like people aren't listening to you so i always wonder about how helpful a term is social emotional mental health because i think there are so many overlaps with different things around physical communication interaction cognition and so on but for me in terms of the books it's about those children that find it very difficult to manage their thoughts and feelings, their emotions, um, and it interrupts or disrupts elements around their education, their ability to access education. Um, and the books talk about things, for example, ADHD, anxiety, eating disorders, bipolar disorder, and the secondary book, um, things like harmful sexual behaviour as well. So really difficult subjects that I think would fit into social, emotional, mental health, but you could also see how the other domains and difficulties might have an effect on SEMH as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. I noticed on social media when I said I was, when I was looking, doing a bit of research on SEMH, someone put on there about if ADHD should be included in SEMH. What's your opinion on this? Because I think... Yeah, um, would, yeah. Um, yeah, it was great. Um, and, and she's absolutely fabulous as well. And I was like, I did include it. I did include it. <laughs> Um, and there are questions there about neurodiversities, for example. Yeah. So I put in Tourette's um, syndrome, and I'm someone who has Tourette's syndrome. Um, and I've put in Tourette's, even though it, it is neurological, it has a fundamental impact on the way that you might experience the world and people might experience you. Yeah. And I think that's why I included ADHD as well. Um, yeah. I've also included um, under tick disorders, which the pandas doesn't quite fit under tick disorders, but that's where I've drawn out some of the themes. Um, you know, pandas is neuropsychiatric. Is it a social, emotional, mental health? Not quite, but does it have a fundamental impact on the way that you engage with school and the world around you? Yes, socially and emotionally in your mental health. So, yeah, I included ADHD um, intentionally. Um, and one of the things as well, which... I don't think I've actually got in the book, so you might not know, is that every chapter has been read by somebody who either has a child with that need or diagnosis or difficulty, um, or they have it themselves. So each section has been sense checked. You know, would you? And the questions were: Would you be comfortable if you, you or your child, were spoken about in that way? And is there anything that I have missed that you think I need to add in um, that's really, really important? And obviously, I've got a word limit, so I couldn't include everything. But the idea was that um, I think sometimes books are written about people for yeah. other people and it loses sight about how we're talking about other other people. Um, and I think I don't want to be a cliche, but being kind is really important, but being practical and it being accessible. So I wanted that to be a kind of flow yeah and we try to do that with the podcast and make sure that we don't just have people who have read a lot about it or um you know talk about speech special education needs and disabilities but actually have lived experience as well because it is so important um we can't otherwise talk you don't them. otherwise you don't know and it's it's you know it's great um you know I've never had an experience of um, I don't have bipolar disorder I've got friends with bipolar disorder so one of my friends read it and I said, are you happy with that? Would you be comfortable? And she said, yes, absolutely. I liked when you did X, Y, Z. Have you thought about this though? And I was like, oh, I haven't. Thank you very much. Um, and I know we're going to talk about the anxiety section. Um, my daughter has anxiety. So I asked her, look, my older daughter, not the three under two. My <laughs> older daughter has uh, anxiety disorder. So she read through it and she said, mum, you have missed X. And I was like, okay. Make sure I had that in. She reread it. She asked for payment. I said I wasn't going to pay her. <laughs> but 
but but then, but I suppose there is a conversation there that if you're using people's expertise, wow. should you be paying them? Yeah. Um, but I probably got her a hot chocolate and so yeah, on. I think but no, thank you to those that do have read it and looked through it and made sure that I was heading in the right yeah. um, direction. No, that's so important. Um, so if we go back to SEMH needs in general, what are some of the reasons, and I appreciate this is broad, but what are some of the reasons why some children and young people may have SEMH needs? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, we could say that it's biological. Uh, and in that sense, fetal alcohol syndrome um, is covered in the primary um, resource to um, to a small amount because... Um, we know that as the child's brain is developing, um, that um, if um, their mother is drinking alcohol, it's not just the alcohol, but it sits within the amniotic fluid and has a, a fundamental impact on brain development. Um, and that's, again, around impulsivity, the way that they understand the world and so on. Um, so it could be purely kind of antenatally, biologically, some of the kind of choices that um, parents and carers have made. Might also be in terms of biological, in terms of um the kind of um neurodevelopmental reasons as well so your things like um, we don't really know why Tourette's happens but Tourette's ADHD and yep. those sorts of things neurodevelopmentally but it can also be um factors pertaining to um, attachment upbringing their opportunities around um families being uh, nurturing and caring like you know the good enough parents so there's also sections on um, attachment disorder for example and it's very clear that it's attachment disorder not attachment styles because that's a different kettle of fish yeah. um, and that might be children that have been neglected had really harmful experiences around adverse childhood experiences as well um, and it could be and I think there's a strong argument for this that school systems are rigid um, and actually um, they're actually something that wouldn't be seen as a social emotional mental health in one particular structure is with the rigidity of another structure yeah so it's also not about um, problematizing the child directly but also looking at the wider school system it's not quite what this book is about but I think that's a kind of different avenue in which you can take which is why things such as the trauma-informed practice is really yeah really helpful because it's not just about going this child is the issue and they have difficulty so these are the adjustments we are going to make I think it's a bigger discussion across um, the, all the different domains so um but also psychologically as well you know um things like anxiety disorder as well so some of the negative thinking that might happen from that um and I suppose as a teacher what what strategies can we have yeah. with the child that's in front of us the whole child in front of us to maybe disrupt some of those negative thinking or provide children with resources and tools in which they can better understand themselves and better access the education yes absolutely and that leads me on to my next question actually about what teachers or firstly what how will teachers notice in the classroom if there are children with SEMH needs what it's a tricky one because again it is so broad but what sort of things would you advise teachers to be looking out for so the first thing I would say is that often children with SEMH that are very externally based, so things like um, they might have, some children might have quite explosive behaviour, they might be quite impulsive, they might shout, they might throw things. That feels pretty obvious in yeah. terms of you're looking for that, what you might call dysregulated behaviour. So finding it difficult to manage their emotions um, externally. But what about those children that internalise some exactly. of their The ones that are harder to notice okay. potentially really hard to notice because actually they're probably quite diligent probably engaging very well you might not notice that they've got anxiety or worries and things like that but also if that's how you've always known them to say to look out for changes doesn't make much sense so I would say one bit is knowing what would be fairly typical for a child um, and it goes back to having kind of an understanding around child development what would you expect for a child of that age um do you notice that they feel uncomfortable answering questions out loud? Do they um, hang around at the back of the classroom? Do they want to be on their own? And that's not necessarily about social, emotional, mental health, but maybe it gives a glimpse to having that professional curiosity and having questions in which to ask. The other bit is the children that don't turn up to school. How are you meant to notice them? So the children with poor attendance, um, it might be that they are 
too unwell to attend school um, or they're too frightened, too scared or find it really, really difficult. And the children that might be coming in late as well, I think, is another thing to look out for. But I think it's about being opening, open to noticing things um, around you. Um, and in my first book that I wrote, I spoke about um, five stages of responding. And the first thing has to be that you've got to notice. Like yeah. without noticing, then, you know, you're teaching and, you know, that's great. You're covering X, Y, Z. But you've got to notice the children that are in your class. Yeah, no, that's so, so important. In specialist settings, so you've worked in specialist settings, you've worked in Prus, etc. Um, how, what do they do differently there? That Because they often get it right. They often support children with SEMH needs really well. Is there anything that they're doing in those settings that you think um, are brilliant and should be used more in mainstream? So I think the... Um... The ability to make relationships on a smaller scale is really powerful. So it's really difficult in mainstream schools because you often have a class of 30, for example, you might only see them once, twice, three times yeah. a week. Um, so that's a kind of structural difference. It's difficult to replicate in mainstream, um, unless I suppose that you have really strong pastoral leads who really yeah. get to know the children directly, because I appreciate being a teacher might be quite difficult. So I think there's bits around this kind of physical numbers and teaching to people ratio that's difficult to kind of emulate. The other thing is um, things around the curriculum development and the focus on um, progress eight scores, for example, where actually what you might find in alternative provision and people referral units, it's around a suite of accreditation to help that child move on, rather than it being about you must take these specific subject areas in which to um, make sure that we have a good progress eight score for you. So yes. I think there's those bits as well. Um, and there's bits there around um, children often with social emotional mental health um, and there are kind of caveats to that might really struggle with um loose transition times or um not having lots of support around break time or lunch time so then arguments spill out into class and things like that and i think having those kind of um routines um around kind of behavior and kind of regular things that um children need to do and um, expectations and are moving from class to class now I'm not saying it needs to be rigid and silence in corridors or anything like that but I think when you have clear expectations of children which are fair and reasonable um children often respond to that really well yeah and the other thing I would say is what Cruise and AP do really well is um speaking to young people and uh, and I'm sure mainstream school does this as well but that kind of prof professional curiosity so if a child shouts at you in a pre and ap my immediate reaction isn't to go don't shout at me my immediate reaction is what's going on yeah Are you okay like and to have that kind of curiosity and bringing it right down quicker so i think those kind of strategies around that kind of co-regulation as yeah, well yeah. rather than uh, firing up rage and go why are you shouting at me oh, I'm not shouting at you miss well yes you, you know and get yeah, I mean, it escalates quickly doesn't it no yeah. that's such a good point absolutely and I suppose like you say with the ratios and the number of it is easier isn't it than in a mainstream class where you do often just see a class you know in secondary just uh, there were classes I would see literally once or twice a week and that was it and it's yeah. hard to build those relationships and I, I imagine relationships is a huge a huge um important factor in PRUs and APs um it I also believe there's a lot more focus on building children's self-esteem. Is that correct? Um, yes. I mean, but it's not to say that mainstream don't do it okay. because they do. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, it's, it can be more focused. It can be more targeted. It can be ways of actually, what does that child find particularly difficult rather than the year group? So yeah. you know, you're able to kind of, have little mini targets around, you know, why don't you put your hand up for that to answer this question? I'm going to tell you what the question is. I'm going to support you with the answer to that question. And then when I ask, I want you to put your hand up. That's really difficult to do within the mainstream setting. But that kind of pre-learning and, and sort of modelling what you want to do with the child, I think, mm -hmm. can happen quicker. And I've seen some great um, APs, alternative provision, where they model lots of conversations of um, around conflict as well. So if you and I were in a class together and um, in this situation, you are my teaching assistant, Georgina, thank you very much. Okay. Um, and I've 
teaching assistant as well. I think it's a wonderful job. But I, I disagree with you. I would model that conversation in front of children in a way that is regulated and appropriate, accountable and transparent. So and it's you don't necessarily get the time for that in mainstream because things are a lot busy. You don't have the time to be flexible and almost come out of scope of the lesson per se for me to go Georgina when you did x I was really you know and you'll go yeah. oh thank you miss for letting me know we won't be able to have that conversation because we've got to yeah, yeah. isn't enough time yeah you know it's really it sounds really good it sounds almost like it's a bit more personalized more child-centered and more um yeah having more time to actually prioritize some of some of these skills it sounds really really good and it's the, you know, it's the classic phrase, isn't it? It's um, Maslow before Blooms, as in Maslow's hierarchy yeah. of needs, making sure that their needs are met, um, you know, and things like making sure um, the kids have breakfast in the morning, that they don't just kind of waltz in without you noticing that their their blazer's dirty or, you know, they're, they're missing pens and pencils and they're already on the back foot and they know yeah. they're going to be sold off in English. So it's noticing those little things. And again, it's not to kind of denigrate at all uh, mainstream schools that have lots of different challenges, loads of different challenges and competing challenges. Yeah. Um, that's all recognising that the, the advantages of special or alternative provisional proofs is that they're smaller. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So in both your brilliant books, um, all about SEMH, you've got a whole chapter on anxiety. Um, and I did say we talk about that. So if we move on and chat a little bit about anxiety and some questions around that, what's your, if we start simply, what's your definition then of anxiety? So yeah, I've literally opened the book um, to help. So, <laughs> I love this. <laughs> so anxiety, anxiety without, without it being a disorder is a normal yep. experience of fears and worries about the environment around you and the stresses around that. Um, it becomes disordered when when it meets certain criteria, um, which I probably speak about in the book. I'm pretty sure I do in terms of emotional based. Yes, I think you did. I think a lot of my yeah, questions sure are based yeah, about but, this chapter. So yeah, I put that everyone feels anxious at various points in their lives, and the, I think the tricky bit is, isn't it, trying to work out at what point does a child need more specialist support? And I think parents are often worried about too, this. Yeah, when's it too much? Yeah. And I think, and having a child with anxiety, I kind of recognise that, you know, is it part of just what my child's kind of personality is and that they are kind of just anxious about things? Yeah. Um, but it's settled. But for me, I kind of felt that something was more than was that actually the anxiety was more prevailing and it sat there irrespective of different kind of stimuli so you can imagine a child feeling anxious or worried because they've got a test coming up or because they're doing something new um you know that's normal and that often drives us to kind of engage in activities in a slightly different way but I think it's when um it's particularly challenging when it's interrupts your everyday life continually or you know and it disrupts what you're doing so if it's a phobia for example um so I would say I really dislike spiders but does it stop me going into the garden or would it stop me going into a bathroom if there was a spider I mean possibly the second but unlikely would it stop me going <laughs> into a garden so there's bits there around do I have the strategies to be able to cope with that anxiety or does it just interrupt my time completely yeah. and I would say that when we should be looking at how do we get further support is one if a child is finding it difficult to cope with I think we should be very child-centered but even if we don't think it's an issue if a kid says actually I find things really difficult I think that's always the time but I think it's also about kind of recognizing actually this is beyond that kind of typical development of worries and anxiety so it's yeah. beyond normal age and stage I suppose it's more than no, that's really, really helpful. And I think that, uh, one uh, quite a large section in the anxiety chapter in your book, you've spoken as well about emotionally based school avoidance, which I'm pleased to be chatting about because that's been very topical recently. It's all over social media, which is great. Um, and it's where children have severe difficulties in attending school. And I know there's previously and in some schools still referring it to it as school refusal, which yes. I think can both yes. agree. We're probably not both fans of that term because it implies choice on the child's behalf when they haven't got any choice in it. I was going to ask you what should schools do but actually I'm going to ask you what shouldn't schools do when children are having these severe difficulties attending school okay 
Firstly, don't call it refusal. That's one bit. The other bit, and I talk about it because I was given this advice, um, bring your child in whatever they're wearing. No, no, please let child have a little bit of self-esteem and respect over their own bodily functions and how they're representing to others. Um, so you, yeah, so- I read that bit in your book and I was thinking about it. So your advice would be not to do that, to focus, because it's a tricky one, might, isn't it? People might differ. Um, and I, I'm welcome to have that discussion. If I said to you, you have to go into work today, and you go, I just can't do it, I can't do it. I say, I don't care how you get into work. Even if you're in your pajamas, get into work. Yeah. No, we're not, like we're not engaging. Right. We're not engaging with the fundamental issue here that a child is too fearful, too anxious, too worried about doing it. I think better advice is, is becoming used to activities relating to go to school. So, for example, yeah. so find out why there's emotional based skill avoidance is the first bit because if it's around bullying or xyz well that needs to be tackled it's not anything else that needs to be kind of focused on it needs to be that a child needs to be feel safe and nurtured within the school environment if it says too many crowds and actually transitions are really difficult well that's helpful but you might not know so i think there's bits around um the one sort of strategy that i used to do is i don't expect you to come to school but what would be really nice if we drove to school and you just told me how you felt yeah I'm expecting you to go in or let's do a routine where every morning we're going to get a cup of tea from um costa or take a cup of tea with us or uh, and you're going to make sure you take a little sandwich in the car and then i'm going to give you a kiss goodbye and you've got a little rock in your pocket um, because that's going to, and I've got a rock in my pocket, and that's whenever I touch and reach into my pocket, it's going to remind us of each other. Maybe that's the way. But yeah. it depends on what the reason is. So for some children, it's because they really like the routines, certain routines. Some it might be there's something going on within the school environment, um, or it's too big, it's too noisy, there's sensory issues. Yeah. Them coming in their pyjamas hasn't resolved the issue. It's just now all their mates are laughing at them. Or their friends know that they're having difficulties and they're being exposed to their personal situation to a wider audience. And I just think that's really uncomfortable. I just don't yeah. like that concept. No, I can get that completely. What should so what can schools do then? So we know what they shouldn't be doing, but if they've got children who are struggling to go to school, what what can they do? If there's somebody listening right now who has a child in mind, they're thinking, right, I don't think I'm doing enough for that child. They aren't managing to attend a school, attend school properly. We're struggling getting them in. What would you advise they do tomorrow and over the next few days and weeks and months? I think the first thing is to take out the punitive action. Um, So things around um, school attendance orders, and I'm sure this is not very popular um, and so on, actually find out, meet with child and family about what are the difficulties, what are the challenges, what's going on, and plan together. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, is it a case that actually this school is not right for you? Do you need specialist provision? Now, we all know it's not as simple as that. Oh, we need specialist provision. We'll get you in tomorrow. It doesn't <laughs> work like that, clearly. Or what can we recreate in the school that will make you comfortable? Or is there a person that you need to go to first to check in with your emotions? Like, actually, is it the case that if you don't do X at home, you're finding things really difficult? But if X happens, then it means actually you feel quite free and able to come to school. Um, And I think it's about how you greet children as well at the door. Um, And I I spoke about this the other day, I think, um, because it doesn't cost any more money. So often you have a person that waits at school to say hello to kids. And sometimes it can be really like, why are you late? What are you doing? Like, why, why is your tie not done up? Yeah. And I've seen other schools where they've gone, oh, it's lovely to see you. How are you doing? And kind of almost walking a little bit with them. Oh, we, you know what? We've really missed you. It's great we're here. And then they might say, let's sort out your tie or whatever it might be. But it's done in a kind of actually the first bit is like, hey. So I think if I were to offer advice today, is find out what's going on because actually yeah. I, I mean, I'm not going to sell my book very well here it's all very well <laughs> good reading my book but if you don't know what the dif- difficulties are from a child's perspective then you can put in all the interventions in the world but you've missed the point about why they're not going yeah. um, and with a kid that really found it difficult to go to school <laughs> this is really bizarre um, once my cat caught a mouse and and the cat the mouse was alive 
Gosh. So I said, and she was really arguing about going to school. She didn't want to go to school. She found, she found it really, really difficult. I said, how about we release the mouse in the playground? Like, I had like a little woodland bit. I wasn't just going to put it on the playground. <laughs> so that's what we did. We got a little box and we took the mouse to school and released it in their playground, which I'm sure the family liaison officer was um, not happy with me. Um, bit of an no. out-of-the-box method, really, isn't it? <laughs> a little bit of an out-of-the-box method. But you know what? You're not going to read that in a book, are you? That's, like, that's the kind of... That's innovation and creativity of a situation that has arisen. Yeah. Distraction as well. Like, I don't want to go to school. Oh, my goodness, we've got this mouse. We can't release it here. How about we do it at school together? And you go in, oh, yeah, okay, mum. So you can buy all the books in the world. Yeah. And uh, and obviously buy mine, buy hundreds of them. Yeah, yeah, do that. But, yeah, but actually the reality is um, it's about the relationships you have with kids and having yeah. that engagement and interest and investment in them. Yeah, no, I think that's really important. And we had an episode on trauma-informed schools a little while ago, and that was a lot of the foundations on that is all about relationships again, isn't it? And getting to know the children and, and understanding the reasons behind the way a child is behaving, the communication. Um, so about, we mentioned specific phobias. I did want to ask you a little bit about phobias as well. What are common phobias for children then? And again, how do you know? Because you said about the, the spider example, but there must be other ones in, as well as spiders. But how would you know when that phobia is, is a, becoming an actual phobia? And what can schools actually do to help support children with phobias? Phobias are really difficult because they are so intense that it kind of um, stops everything. It's all encompassing. So if you've got a child with a phobia of a wasp, you know as a teacher when there's a wasp in that room because that is it, you have lost that child. Um, so phobias, generally speaking, are really quite common under the age of 10, really, really common. Um, and they're often quite almost evolutionary okay. in context. So it is probably normal, natural and sensible to have a fear of spiders and snakes it's contextual as well i'd probably be more frightened of snakes if, if i was in australia if they were, you know whereas we only have one poisonous one don't we i think so yes. when do you get help i think it goes back to that idea if, if to me as they move from primary into secondary you would have thought that they would have more of a kind of ability to regulate their response to that external stimuli that those heights heels spiders or whatever it might be to be able to rationalize that their fear is ill-founded i suppose now i think there are some slight differences to that so for example if a child is attacked by a dog and they have a phobia of dogs thereafter actually is it more about ptsd and they need to go through that yeah. route of support so i think it's understanding the context around that person um another kind of phobia which is really difficult to work with is metaphobia which is the fear of being sick or seeing yeah. sick being everyone being sick um and that can then have an impact on going out your ability to eat food your ability to be around other people to eat food so again, it's that notion, I think I've probably used it about 20 times in this podcast, of it being <laughs> all-encompassing and it really yeah. disrupting your kind of activities of daily living. Yeah. But, and if it's doing things like interrupting your sleep as well, so if you've got a phobia of dying and then you're staying awake and things like that, that and yeah. that's going to affect everything. So I think that's quite an important one. But I think... When you're younger, it is fairly common for children to be frightened of things. Yeah. Um, and they look to us as adults, don't they, about representing how we um, respond to that same stimuli. Um, so I've been, I hate doing this, but I'm not a big fan of garden bugs and things like that. But we've been looking at slugs and woodlouse outside in the garden. With no stuff like that, Sarah. <laughs> well yeah you would wouldn't you of course you would yeah because you do all outside stuff yeah I'm not such a fan but <laughs> it's you know children look up to the adult about how they're yeah. responding and rather than you get oh oh that's disgusting oh that's gross it's I'm modeling so yes, absolutely 
No, I was a bit, I used to be properly scared of the dentist, like to the point where I would faint. I remember once going with my mum and just sitting at the side and she just had to have the, you know, the saliva vacuum thing. I think it's got a proper word, but you know what I mean? Yeah. That thing that goes, the thing in the mouth. Um, I'm sure that looked great on YouTube just then. Like <laughs> um, but she had that bit and I actually passed out in the dentist's room just from that, just from the noise of hearing that. And then when my own kids when they were born, I thought, I'm really going to have to be okay with this. Um, you know, I'm really going to have to manage wobbly teeth and all of that side of things. And you know what? I'm actually all right with it now. I can manage the dentist. Yeah, exactly. And I don't understand that. I find that really hard to understand because it wasn't just uh, I was frightened. I was genuine. You know, I would pass out regularly. I you, must, like, I can count on my hand how many times I've passed out with dental things. Yet, being a mum, I somehow managed to sort it out. It's it's like we be, we become responsible for someone else and not just us. And it's your yeah. ability to rationalise the importance of it. Um, and I think it's the exposure to it continually. So, you know, That's I used to, um, um, get, found it quite difficult to have blood tests, really difficult. And now I've had blood transfusions. I've given blood um, before my blood transfusions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I regularly have kind of blood tests for um, different reasons. And I've just got used to it now. So there's bits where actually being exposed to something, but how you're exposed to it in a structured way. So I wouldn't say if a kid is scared of dogs and has a phobia of dogs that you just bring in a dog to around the playground. There's probably some steps there. Um, And I think that kind of slow, gentle exposure and also not lying to children. So if you have an expectation of that, I don't know, let's say you decide as a class to go beekeeping, a bit random, but you know, it's quite fun. I've done it for a day. Um, I was just thinking of the health and safety forms on that one Sarah might be quite huge but yeah no it's good fun it's good fun Um, and but you wouldn't lie to a child and say oh we're going x you'd say this is what it is and would you like to come you could maybe sit over there and just watch and just observe or even you could be really like you don't even have to come with us but what we'll do is going to ring you so you can see what we're doing and then again that kind of gradual exposure but yeah, you wouldn't just crop, you wouldn't just go, look, here's a bee, beehive, get dressed off. Oh, okay. Not so good. <laughs> um, another phobia that we haven't, haven't mentioned was um, about social phobia or anxiety, which I find really interesting. And I was reading about that in your book again. How, what is that? And how can schools support children with that? Because that might be one that they notice more because there's not hope, but there's not that many dogs in school. And no, it's September, but about from that, they tend to go away. So whereas social anxiety is something that's probably going to impact on children quite a lot presumably because they're having to put their hands up in class they're having to they're also the social you know the social situations in school with their peers yeah what is it and how how does it impact and schools have so many interactions with others so Mm. that's where it's really striking so it's about those intense worries about social situations that might arise and there's loads of social situations within school from ordering your food at the cafeteria through someone asking you a question for through to playground after school going to school and so on um and it's i think especially difficult in environments which you have less control over so it might be the unfamiliar situations or with more people that you don't know. Um, and actually what it does is has interruptions to your different activities, your learning, um, mm. engaging with friends and things like that. Um, so I think fundamentally, I think social phobia and general anxiety disorder are ones that you'll probably see more within the school environment Um, and social phobia what you might find brings into that emotional based school avoidance because if you're phobic around the situations that you might find yourself within the school environment then actually to protect yourself you might go actually going to school is really difficult and you might not have that cognition you might not understand what that that's what the difficulty is but that might be the impact Um, so social phobia might also be the driving factor for some of those children that aren't attending school as well yeah Um, and what do we do about it? Um, I think perhaps giving children roles in social situations. Um, I actually find it really interesting and I haven't seen it. Um, and it's probably quite controversial to talk about it, I'm sure. But the Michaela School, as I understand, has different roles at lunchtime. Now, actually, for children with social phobia, that might be really empowering. Today is my role of X. I know what I meant to do and I'm it's been modeled to me and now I'm doing and I've not seen it in action and I can have lots of criticisms of it I'm sure 
which is perhaps a different podcast. But actually, that kind of scripting of group activities might be really empowering for certain children, I think, with phobia. Yeah. Um, and I only say that because I asked that I, my daughter and I, see, she's the one that tells me everything. <laughs> and I say, you know, what would you think about going to this school? She goes, actually, I find that really helpful. Wow, because that's really interesting. I don't know what to say or what to do. Yeah. And it takes away that worry. Now, how do you then build that independence so children don't need that as a framework of a scaffold is another question. Yeah. But for some, it might work. Yeah, no, I watched I watched the program on her school and and that bit about the lunch the lunchtime bit in particular where they had different roles and they had a guest they had people regularly coming into the school like adults and they had like roles of speaking to them and yeah yeah I'll reserve judgment um or not yeah I mean I've not gone to yeah. school um, and I know actually at some point I will go to school and I think there's lots of questions about actually how does that then restrict other children yeah. Is- is quite profound but I think in that but the structure that intervention might help those sorts of children on a small scale maybe yeah no, it, no absolutely it's interesting isn't it and another another topic you mentioned in in your book you mentioned quite a lot which is why I've got so many questions it's brilliant it really does cover such a wide range of of difficulties that children might face but one of them is situational mutism um not selective I don't like that term either um because again that implies choice whereas situational yeah in different situations children might not be able to speak um yeah so what is it and who yeah why do children experience this I think again such an interesting topic and must be so difficult for children and families experiencing it yeah, and I think, interestingly, um, within the home environment, you're less, less likely to see it because it's situational. It's more yeah. likely to happen within um, other environments. Now, again, why might it happen and what is it? So what is it is the kind of inability to speak in certain situations. Um, you might find the um, children a bit grunty, like, hmm, hmm. Or they might, um, which is not great for a podcast if you're just listening, just listening to me make sound. Just tuned um, in now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so it might just be the kind of one word grunts or one word answers. Um, yeah. Or it could just be um, not talking at all. Um, some children might use sign instead to have their meaning understood. Um, I've worked with children who have drawn or written um, as well a sign. Um, a whole range of reasons really um in terms of i put it within the context of anxiety is being frightened about how you might be understood being worried about saying something out loud um not feeling comfortable or not knowing when the patterns are or when you should talk as well so as children kind of babies develop you can have a kind of to and fro with babbling quite young like you know you might say oh hello how are you and they might go and actually that to and fro is learned quite early for some children, they really struggle with that kind of those social cues. So then they might not talk because they don't want to kind of get it wrong. And so being quieter is better. Um, and sometimes with when children feel more comfortable, they might talk. But when you're just going to the shop and you're asking for a cup of tea, um, that you don't have time for that. It's just a moment. So ways of kind of approaching that is scaffolding being there when a child says something so you start they take over and so on um speech and language um therapists talk about sliding in um method which is where you might have children um in a little group who they're comfortable with maybe one other person they're talking to and then you might have adult kind of wander in and kind of just being around and sort of building 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 up now I'm not a speech and language therapist so I haven't done that um sliding in method to uh, you know any justice at all it's a lot more complicated than that and and I'd recommend going on training for it because I've done it for children selected uh, situational mutism it's really powerful yeah um again it's finding out what's going on yeah no, so they don't, is it because they and do they know why they're not talking um as well yeah. so um, it, does it overlap with social with a social phobia then as well? Yeah, it can do. Yeah, absolutely. So it can be a kind of um, almost like a symptom of yeah. social phobia. Um, or it could be a symptom of OCD that, you know, yeah. if I say X and X might happen, then this will happen and, and that kind of catastrophic thinking. So yeah. again, it goes down to, or it could even be, it's not quite situational mutism, I suppose, but not talking could be to do with being depressed, being yeah. really depressed depressed and that kind of poverty of thinking and that slowing down um 
there's all different reasons really I suppose yeah what shouldn't teachers do then presumably they shouldn't try and force a child who is struggling to talk to talk and not pick on them to answer questions and shouldn't put them in the situation or uh, it must be tricky working out if you're doing them do you know what I mean if you're helping them or not like (laughs) my daughter's really unhappy um with her English teacher I'm not going to say his name (laughs) (laughs) yeah can you email whoever to say that he's not to ask me questions in class because she doesn't talk very much I wouldn't say it was situational mutism maybe it is but she doesn't talk much in class yeah and um I was like no I'm not going to tell him that he's going to you know because there's another bit where it's actually if you don't ask children questions, how can you check their learning? So can you look at alternatives? Can you build up the confidence of the child around actually um, when you do answer a question? My God, it's amazing. Or do they feel embarrassed by that? And please don't do that. It depends on what, which kid it is. Yes. You know, quiet praise or public praise. Um, I really like the idea of pre-learning. So almost... Um, Giving children the answer to questions for them, go, okay, so when sir asks you X, do you know the answer? Yes, okay. What is it? Okay, you've told me. Let's let's put our hand up. Or they write it down and the teaching assistant um, reads it on their behalf. They become their voice potentially. Um, oh, I like that. It's like setting them up to succeed, isn't it? They know they're gonna, they've got the answer right, and they're gonna, they're gonna get some praise or whatever for it. And they, yeah, it just takes that element of nerves out, and they're not having to think about everything about they having to talk in front of other people as well as the worry yeah, of getting it, it wrong. It's so many demands, isn't it? Oh, I'm going to be foolish for getting it wrong. Oh, and I'm speaking out loud. What happens if I sound ridiculous? What happens if not only have I got it wrong, I say it wrong, so it even sounds even worse. And so some children just have that kind of catastrophic thinking. I think it goes down to. Um, to teach a being sensitive yeah to a child, really um about actually what would be helpful and if and if the child can't answer themselves because they don't talk you know would they respond to an email going you know I've noticed that you don't really want to answer questions I think you know the answers can you let me know how I can ask you um or let you know what what would you feel comfortable with or if they if they're pre-verbal in some way and they don't really have words at all can you speak to their Senko? That's I mean, a slightly different conversation as well about yeah. how they might participate in class meaningfully. Yeah, absolutely. We could probably do a whole podcast on that one in itself, couldn't we? <laughs> well, right. If we we'll talk quickly about your books before you go, because I appreciate I've had you for a while, which has been very generous of you. Thank, Thank you. you. But your books then, where can people find them and buy them? <laughs> you know, you do. Like, how many listeners do you get, Georgina? Quite a lot, yeah. Quite a lot. Quite a lot, because I heard you're going for like an award tomorrow, aren't you? Yes, I am. <laughs> so you're, you're quite popular. So there's different things you can do to buy my book. Is if all your um, listeners went to Waterstones, yeah, and ordered the book, what yep. that means it plays with the system a little bit, and mm. they go, "Oh, this is a really popular book. Maybe yep. we should put it on the shelves." So that's one way of doing it. And every I, single one of you. <laughs> every single one of you go go to waterstones and get them to deliver it in it becomes more popular because it's that kind of marketing yeah and so i've already got my mum to buy one i bought i i sent i don't know if you noticed georgina i sent it from waterstones i did notice that and i thought oh i did it Um, the reasoning for that i'll have to do that my books that's a good idea (laughs) so you can do that um or you can buy um direct from routledge um there's 20 percent discount on at the moment i saw Um, again on social media somebody was mentioning is it Louise Selby mentioning the discount code of 25% yeah. off or something? Yeah, 20, 20% always, discount. Um, yeah, that's always cool. Um, I'm doing a series of competitions if you don't have enough money at the moment where I'm placing my book in random esoteric films from like the 1980s and 90s um, <laughs> to say, and if you know what film it is, you can be entered into a draw. So you could get so is this free- on, on, well, on Twitter, Twitter or- at Phoenix Ed. Yeah. No, I, we're not uh, I know it's Twitter, isn't it? Let's call yeah, it Twitter. Not it. So um, at Phoenix Ed, um, Sarah. So I'm running a series of competitions where I'm giving books away um, or Amazon. And if you buy from Amazon, again, it puts me up the list. So that's quite yes. cool. And because I'm never going to be as popular as Tom Bennett or Paul Dix, it'd be wonderful if one day I'll be like, look how popular my books are. Um, <laughs> that would be nice. I'd like that. Um, yeah. 
so um yeah so just do a google all about yeah. fcmh and you should be able to get them um brilliant but- i'll put a link uh, i'll ask sarah afterwards and i'll put for all our listeners and watchers on youtube i will put a link to her preferred website to buy it on the show notes below so do have a look at, at those as well as some like suitable resources that are linked to the episode as well um and your website can you tell us because some people i will put those on the show notes as well but can you tell us it verbally for those people that don't click or don't know where to, yeah, I never, I, mean, I never we- know where to find it on the podcast when I'm listening, but you can like scroll down and they, there are links to things that you can click on, but some people just like to hear it. So what's the, yeah, no, I appreciate yeah. that. Um, unfortunately it isn't um, a website name that rolls off the tongue, so apologies, but it's www.phoenixeducationconsultancy.com. Yeah. Uh, and on the website is, um, loads of free resources loads of free resources actually they're amazing I, I'm going to plug them because I went on your website and I was telling my colleagues I was like oh my goodness have you seen what's on her website and I felt I was annoyed with myself that I hadn't actually been on it before because you've got some fantastic stuff on yeah. there like genuinely brilliant they are yeah I'm I'm really pleased with them so I have an amazing artist in residence um Baz who used to do Postman Pat in the 1970s he's now my artist in residence and that's lots of the images um, and that was really important to me because I didn't want images of just white kids um that looked like me I wanted it to represent the communities that we work with um, and my friends and so on so he does all my artwork so it's more personalized as well which I'm really proud of um, you know you might recognize streets in London in Leicestershire that sort of thing um and but it's loads of resources from how to welcome children from refugee communities and yeah. um, the community is translated um in different languages so um I think there's um Farsi there's Ukrainian um and I think there's a couple of other languages if any of your listeners speak another language and they want to translate they are accessible to everyone for free and that's really important yeah. um and I've got about OCD, I've got um, about um, achondroplasia. Um, oh, oh, the bereavement it? ones. I nearly, I was going to, I need to forward them on to my friends because I was actually, I thought they were brilliant because you've got resources on bereavement, haven't you? I've got bereavement for primary and secondary as yeah. well. Um, and the OCD one, a parent asked me to make something. So I made it, but I made it accessible. And achondroplasia, a parent whose child's got achondroplasia, um, and learning difficulties as well asked me to create it so what I've done is I've tried to make sure that, that then is accessible for everybody and all of the things are in a matter matter of fact way but explaining what teachers can do in order to support children um, sort of non-clinicians of really you know challenging difficult questions and they're all free yeah. um, and I know people often charge for resources um, it was really important for me to give back to the community and if I know that people are using them that's lovely Uh, but please just rip them off and say they're yours you know but please use them (laughs) but yeah I know that'd be brilliant I'm sure there'll be lots of schools listening that will have a have a look at those because they're really really useful thanks ever so much Sarah it's gone so fast I can't believe we've been talking for an hour yeah that's fabulous (laughs) and we'll talk again for an hour tomorrow night maybe (laughs) sounds wonderful thanks ever so much for joining us Ah, she was great, wasn't she? Um, Yeah, so make sure you have a look at her books. I'll pop the links in the show notes below. Have a look at the resources we've mentioned, resources that we've got that are linked to SEMH as well. And thanks again for listening to Sending the Experts with me, Georgina Durrant. Make sure you subscribe to our channel on YouTube and on any podcast provider.